Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Gene Burgess and Nancy Baim, authors of Twitter, a Biography, published in the summer of 2020 by New York University Press. Gene and Nancy, welcome to the show. So great to have you here. Thanks for having us. Hi there. So um, before we get into the book, I wonder if you could just share a little bit about yourselves, about your training and your interests, and, and how that's led you to work on this project. Gene, can we start with you? Sure. Um, after being a musician for a couple of decades, I actually trained in, in English, uh, communication and cultural studies, and then went on to the fairly new discipline at that time of internet studies and eventually co-founded a center at QUT called the Digital Media Research Center. Um, and along that way, during that journey, uh, social media started to become a bit of a thing. And so increasingly my work on, I guess, uh, everyday life, everyday participation in culture became entangled with all these new digital media technologies and platforms. And uh, I pursued those interests into all, all sorts of interesting places, including collaboration with my friend Nancy. Yeah, I'm Nancy Baim, um, and I'm a senior principal research manager at Microsoft uh, Research in New England. And I'm trained in communication, particularly in interpersonal communication. I couldn't train in new media studies because at the time I was training, there was no such thing. So I kind of broke the rules by studying what was neither interpersonal nor mass comm, and nobody quite knew where to put it, but I did it anyway, which worked out rather well for me. Uh, so I've been studying social dynamics of online life and the dynamics between online and offline in our relationship since the early 1990s. And in terms of this project, uh, I had gotten to know Jean while she was doing her training and uh, watching her meteoric rise. And we were joking around on Twitter for years and years. And I think both of us have, Jean's got this longstanding interest in sort of people's everyday practices. And I have longstanding interests in that and also in how people come up with norms and rules that they follow and organize social activities. And Jean and I were spending a lot of time joking around with one another on Twitter. Uh, conveniently, with the time difference, I get up just as she's getting a little loopy in the evening, and she's all ready to go just as I'm getting a loopy the next 12, 14 hours later. So uh, a lot of joking around on Twitter led to a lot of noticing how everybody was telling everybody else that they were tweeting wrong and saying, gee, we ought to write a book about this. And it took it took some time to actually write the book, but that's where it came from, was just our own, the combination of our own interests, plus our friendship, plus our continual observation that Twitter was developing norms about how to do it right, even though it was not something that ostensibly had a way to do it right or wrong built into it. I guess I should say in there that uh, the the core research in the, in the book came about because I was lucky enough to be visiting Nancy's work uh, as a visiting researcher. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and, during the time that I, I wanted to do stuff about, you know, how do you study the histories of these platforms, even as they're evolving so rapidly? And during the time that I was there, uh, Twitter decided to make available uh, your complete user archive, your, your complete archive of tweets. And I thought, huh, this could be an interesting 
thing to do something with. With I remember texting Nancy at about, I don't know, it was pretty early on a Saturday morning. I was in one of those moods and I thought we should do something with this. And so that's where the, the actual, the, the joke about writing a book turned into a research project that could then be converted into a book eventually. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's absolutely fascinating to hear how those interests uh, led into this very unique book, Twitter, a biography. So let's talk a little bit about this choice of, of biography as your your method. You know, with so much of the the literature on big tech, we're kind of used to getting the the behind the scenes into the proverbial smoke-filled room. I don't know what a smoke-filled room is in the tech industry, but but you know, your story is so so strikingly different in that everything that is that you're writing about, for the most part, is kind of out in the open. So I wonder if you could take us into the book by telling us what the book is not, and then share with us how it is that you tried to approach uh, your your subject. Well, one thing that the book is not, as you've alluded to, is a, a corporate biography focusing on the I don't know vape filled rooms. Um, <laughs> I hope Jack doesn't sue me there. Water. Jack, Jack's air water room. Um, there is already such a book about Twitter called. Hatching Twitter by Nick Bilton. It's a very popular um, kind of corporate biography. Some, you know, some racy language in there. But th- there's two reasons that we weren't writing that book. Uh, for one, there already is such a book. Uh, the other reason is um, also, as you've alluded to, very few researchers, scholars, students can get inside a, a company or, you know, inside the tech of a platform mm-hmm. to. Um, observe it directly but even more importantly than that um, platforms aren't wholly produced within those smoke-filled rooms or inside those pieces of software and hardware they're co-produced by uh, all of the people who have found uses for them communicated and connected on them and indeed even by uh, media and journalists commenting on the platform and what it might mean. So uh, we wanted to both take a wider view uh, and also create something a little more uh, accessible and kind of a model that a model that other people can take up without necessarily having that privileged insider access. Do you want to add anything, Nancy? Yeah, I think I would just add that the privileged insider access is all well and good, and there's certainly stories to be told there, but we had no interest in writing that story because what both of us are fascinated by is what do people do when they get this stuff and how do they make sense of it and how do they find their own way through it and how do they make it what they want it to be regardless of what those people in smoke-filled rooms thought they were going to do with it. And so for us, the the history of Twitter, the life story of Twitter is, you know, sure, Jack Dorsey and, and Ev, they're, they're players, they're important, but they're just, act, they're, they're, they're in, among, in a cast of characters that includes millions of people who use Twitter, as well as Gene said, all the other things. So to have written a smokes-filled room story would have been antithetical to our position, which is that those people are uh, not the only characters who matter in this story. And in fact, maybe minor characters when all is said and done in some ways. 
It's, it's very good. And often the people who are shaping this platform are the, the, the users. And while the, the company has this major role, um, they're in many cases reacting. And so we really, in the structure of the book, you take us through these three major conventions and often initiated by the users. And then, then it precipitates this wave of transformation. So let's talk about the first one of these, which is the, the at convention, the the at sign. So how did this feature emerge from the early adopter community? And and how did it start to change what Twitter fundamentally was as a platform? I think it helps if you go back to Twitter's origins and remember, as your listeners may well not, that Twitter began as an SMS messaging service, and it was really designed as this sort of locative media where you would be able to check in with your pals. So it had this very uh, ephemeral, chatty, you're probably talking to people you already know. And the other thing that's important to realize about extremely early Twitter is that it had a public timeline where every single tweet was available so that if you logged on to twitter.com, you would see every single tweet that people were tweeting, which is kind of unimaginable now. The internet would explode, but that was that was the interface. So imagine this long stream of messages and and people are trying to have conversations with one another without any way of indicating I'm talking to this person without any way of linking things to one another. So with the app reply, like all of the conventions or features that we talk about in the book, there were some very real communication needs where people were just like, I'm talking to particular people and I need to be able to indicate that and coordinate it somehow with them. So they know that this was a reply. I mean, it's, it's not even communication 101. It's like, Oh, Oh, one Gene. Like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and even at that early stage, you see people borrowing from a bunch of other technologies that were around at the time. So that the at um, was used to kind of uh, mark location, as Nancy said, or mark an activity. So you know, I'm I'm at running errands. Oh yeah, those other early examples, right? Yeah, at, but and even right at the beginning, uh, there were competing ideas about what everyone sort of had a sense that there was kind of too much stuff on the platform and there had to be a way to organize it but there were competing ideas about how to organize it so some people wanted to make the information better organized so at location um i i am addressing this tweet at a person other people uh pretty early on started to see that you could use the at to um, actually maintain a conversation and we see these kind of this tension between this informational and conversational use of the platform right from the beginning, and people explicitly kind of taking to their weblogs, which is a thing that people had at the time, to to have this debate and just really earnest debate and discussion about uh, what this feature, the at could be could be for, and what this new platform Twitter was, what it was for. So um, right from the very beginning, uh, there was kind of a core community of users who really had ideas about how this thing could work better, what it could be for. Uh, meanwhile, the developers were just, I think, just trying to make the thing not fall over because they had bigger problems with the infrastructure on the back end and so on. Yeah, I remember talking to people at that time and somebody who knew, somebody who was who was in with the, the people in the smoke-filled rooms and say, why does it this? Why does it that? And they were like, oh, honey, we're just trying to make the thing stay up from minute to minute. You know, who's got spare cycles to do that? I, yeah, I think when, when Oprah famously posted her first tweet, they were virtually, you know, running a separate instance of Twitter off someone's laptop or something. I mean, I could have the details wrong there, but it was pretty touch and go is the point. 
you know, in the in this chapter on the at, you you mention um, this concept of the performative element. So it, it started to become this interesting way of people realizing that this there's this divide between the kind of the intimacy and the public the public nature of this platform. Could you talk a little bit to that dynamic? The point that I would make is that um, what made social media a distinctive paradigm in the history of communication was a, a bit of a convergence between intimate, interpersonal yeah. communication, sharing everyday life details and and publicness, including um, conversing about public issues, including news and, and politics. And it wasn't just that both of those different things happened in one platform, it was that they really affected each other so that uh, everyday life was more public and so that public concerns were um, communicated more through everyday experience and through friendships. Uh, and that, that, that was a live tension, I think, that was really attractive and interesting, actually, about platforms like Twitter early on. That, uh, I was just going to say that that tension between the intimate and the news becomes pretty much the core tension of Twitter. And, and we did not go into the book saying, let's write a book about how Twitter went from being an intimate network for friends into a place for late-breaking news, but it ended up being that book just because through the process, what we unpacked with the at reply and the other two features was the ways that as these features got invented and implemented, they became part of a shift away from the intimate and the personal and the ephemeral and the just hanging out, just checking in origins of Twitter into this late break, fast breaking news kind of platform where, um, as I said on a panel the other day, if you want to go on Twitter and just hang out and be social, it's almost a resistant use of Twitter now, whereas originally it was the intended use. So that back and forth between this is a place where you should be serious and talk about your profession and talk about world events and, and make sure that you're putting forth a persona that's imminently marketable and hireable and an expert in something versus this is the place where you hang out with your friends and where Jean and Nancy make bad jokes in the morning and late at night and try and make each other laugh, right? Which was what first drew people to Twitter. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned how in the, the early days of the app, people were also using it for the location uh, nature of you know actually being at a place, and this next convention that you, you devote your attention to the the hashtag almost seems like a way of creating virtual spaces. And in fact, you note that early on, the hashtag was was often used in correlation or, or even as a proxy to actual spaces like like academic conferences, for example. So so what led to the hashtag, which is now so ubiquitously associated with Twitter, but it's it's also ubiquitous in, in so many social media platforms. And then what are some of the conflicts that debates around the proper use of the hashtag has introduced? So the hashtag um, comes about kind of intentionally because people are trying to figure out, again, just as people are trying to figure out, how do I reply to somebody in a way that makes it evident? You have this problem of tons and tons and tons of people tweeting in real time. And sometimes they want to tweet about a thing and they want to be able to find other tweets about that thing. And whether that thing is a location or an event or a disaster, um, they need a way to mark, this is a tweet about that thing. 
Uh, so the hashtag arises as an effort really to organize topic um, and quickly also becomes associated with other sorts of live events. Um, and then, of course, it also quickly starts getting played with, as does everything on Twitter, where people start using hashtags to frame their tweet as a joke or to uh, trending hashtags starts happening. And then you get uh, Black Twitter getting really, really good at that and having lots of fun with that and suddenly making sure that they're the ones who are always trending. And then people are going, wait a minute, what's happening here? So uh, it gets used in all kinds of ways. You get all kinds of conflict around. Uh, there's too much of this in my stream. I don't care about that event. Um, and then, of course, now you get all of this hashtag jamming that happens really, really quickly, where as soon as you got something going, somebody's coming in there with some sort of abuse or something else that doesn't fit gene you wanna yeah um again yeah again early on there was actual discussion about whether hashtags should be used to organize groups of people so kind of like channels in internet relay chat or whether it should be used as nancy said to convene a conversation on a topic and of course those two things blur so um black twitter is a good example of that in Australia. Indigenous X is a good example of that, where a hashtag uh, and and a rotating uh, account under the Indigenous X handle um, actually convene a you know a recognisable um, public uh, of Indigenous Twitter users. And actually, there's still I think there's still ag chat meetups in many countries where. Uh, at least in Australia, there's a particular time frame on a Wednesday evening for two hours where that hashtag would come to life as uh, um, as people working in agriculture, farmers, people living in rural locations all got together to have a chat uh, once a week about agricultural policy or mental health in rural areas or, or whatever it, it might be. And so this, again, this tension between um, an information stream and a social group is is alive in, in the hashtag as well. And of course, uh, hashtags are Twitter's most successful export. Although you know the use of that symbol predates Twitter, that the idea of a hashtag as a social movement, I think, is only possible because of Twitter. If you think about Me Too, for example. Yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter is a great example where that phrase yeah. existed and was was yeah. organized as a, as a movement prior to Twitter, but then it was when it became a hashtag that it was able to become amplified and exported. Yeah, and so it I becomes a... Give Twitter credit for things it isn't, but there's a, there's a sort of a combination between the affordances of Twitter and the hard work of people prior to yeah. encountering that affordance that allows it to amplify social movements in that way. One of the things that you mentioned that the hashtag really introduces some some possibilities for exploitation. So both with just, I think you mentioned how advertisers would would overdo it with you know this endless stream of of hashtags, or um, the hashtag convention started to uh, to create the possibility for for bot you know to really uh, you know bot technology to to disrupt. Um, various events. So anything you'd like to share about that particular um, conflict that, that was introduced into the platform here? So the way the hashtag came to work such that it, uh, if, you, if you form a series of characters with that 
hash or pound symbol at the front, it becomes a hyperlinked keyword that links to the search um, designed so that uh, groups of large groups of people interested in that topic could come together. Of course, that has a flip side, which is that it that that uh, jumping on that hashtag is an easy way to spam a, a huge number of people. Of course, the platform in, then introduces various technologies to manage that and mitigate against that. But it's part of uh, a, a broader uh, problem, I suppose, of coordinated exploitation, which may or may not involve bots and automation, or it may just involve, in some cases, large-scale coordination of people to do mischief or to nudge a public conversation in a certain direction. But the, the affordance of the hashtag to call the public into being can also be exploited, is the point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I... I not not hashtag specific, but we haven't mentioned yet, and it seems like an important part of this conversation for listeners who haven't read the book is to realize that these things we're talking about, at replies, hashtags, say they are not things where the folks in the smoke-filled room said, we need a way to call the public into being. How about the pound sign? They're things where the public said, we need to be. How can we make ourselves be? How about an at reply? How about a pound sign? And then after some time when this thing was being used by Twitter users and Twitter users were debating, is this the right way to use it? Is this the wrong way to use it? Is this a good way? Is this, I don't like the way you're, mostly they were saying, I don't like the way you're using it. You're doing it wrong. Um, after after some time, then the folks in the smoke-filled room go, oh, and they probably don't smoke. But We have to say, we don't know if Jack smokes. Or, or not? I assume he doesn't. I mean, he's such a. Did you see that meme going around the other day where there was a picture of him in his kitchen, which is all just like extremely austere and just the simplest white Domastic. plates and glasses? Yeah. And people were saying, you know, what does he, what does he feed you? And everyone was like, air, maybe air. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing it's not a smoke-filled room. But, but those folks are not the ones who said, let's create this feature. They're the ones who looked out and said. People have created this feature. They're using it. It's useful for them, and we can make it useful for us too. And then they right. build it into yeah. the interface, and that then causes its own ramifications. But I do think it's real important that everybody understand that, especially since we started off by talking about how the users are so important, and our whole point was to talk about yeah. the users rather than the rather than the business leaders. Um, this, these are features that are 100% user-led. Now, having said that, uh, the users aren't an undifferentiated, you know, democratic mass either. Um, <laughs> no, they're constantly like, arguing with each other. Yeah, lo- <laughs> lots of lots of different conventions are emerging and and literally competing. And uh, often you can find evidence of a, a few guys who are pretty influential in the tech community. They may be connected. They may even be ex employees in some cases. Uh, really quite explicitly um, engaging in activism to get a, a certain feature adopted in a certain way. So it's, it's not an even, we're not saying it's an even playing field where in the early days of Twitter, you know, um, it, everybody had a, an equal say in, in how things turned out either way. Yeah. Yeah, certain people were definitely more likely to get the ear of the folks running the company than others. In fact, there's a story in Hatching Twitter, so it's not our story from our research, um, that talks about Chris Messina 
taking himself off to the Twitter offices to pitch the hashtag as as something that the platform should adopt. And and so the story goes, um, the, the people at Twitter thought it was ugly, it was terrible user interface design, it used up too many characters, all of which are absolutely true, but it doesn't stop it becoming embedded as a very strong part of Twitter's culture. Yeah, I mean, that's a conflict that Twitter wrestles with throughout is this thing that the users came up with makes it way better for them, but new users have no idea what the heck is going on here. How do we make it that writing that tension between the loyal user base who's got all kinds of conventions that make total sense to them and the new users that they need for growth so they can prove themselves to the, yeah. the market uh, in- is, a, is a real tension. And increasingly, those new users, uh, for them, the internet is Facebook. So uh, you you expect React buttons to act the same way as Facebook React buttons, for example. (laughs) So in this this user-led kind of evolution of the program, you know, you've already started to touch on how etiquettes or norms start to evolve. and, And I think where this really comes to to a head is in your your last convention is the, the retweet, which really starts to create some distance between early adopters and expert users with with mainstream usability, and then of course metrics and measurability. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the drama over the the, the various iterations and evolutions of the uh, of the retweet? Well, the drama was there from the beginning. There was. There was an intense, well, maybe not intense, but an extensive kind of competition about how to signal that you were reposting somebody else's tweet or a part of somebody else's tweet with the correct attribution. Um, and so right from the beginning, we see this kind of idea of, about a tweet as kind of a copyrightable media object um, as opposed to kind of a, an oral utterance that that could be played with um, and people had strong feelings in in both directions about that to the extent that there were conventions like you had to type MT if you had changed the original tweet which you often had to do because it's carefully crafted to fit into 140 characters and then you're saying <laughs> just by quoting it you're taking some of those characters away yes uh, so later on that all gets fixed because the ca- character limit doesn't really become real anymore it's longer anyway and so on um, but really the, the original idea, I think, was very much about that. It was about quoting with attribution. These days, fast forward, it's about just kind of compulsively pressing this button so that you can post something that somebody else has posted. It appears in your feed. Um, you might you know, gain some extra attention for that, uh, but it preserves that copyright of the original tweet. It preserves the, the, um, the avatar of the... Uh, original poster, whether that's a, a media brand or a celebrity or uh, a journalist or one of your friends. Yeah, that avatar was really controversial when they first mm. built in the retweet button and people started seeing it. I mean, it used to be if Gene retweeted you, Ryan, I would see Gene's avatar and it would say, retweet Ryan says, da 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 da. And suddenly I'm seeing Ryan's avatar in my feed instead of jeans and people were very upset about this it was sort of like mm. you've invited a bunch of strangers into my home it's like if i, I wanted want to follow people, ryan i'd follow ryan right i'd follow ryan right if i follow gene um and so 
that's that's one level of controversy which people yeah. just forget about. Of course, the other thing that happens, you, you alluded to metrics, and, and the retweet is absolutely the place where this really comes into being. And we saw it so clearly. As soon as the retweet becomes something that's built into Twitter where you can press a button and it retweets, people start posting in order to get retweeted. It becomes an incentive to be able to to do that. So, for example, one person who we interviewed for the book was looking at when they started using retweets and, and recounted that it became an office competition, which person in the office could get the most retweets, right? And then somebody else talks about realizing that these jokes went really well and doing more of those because those could get retweeted. And somebody else talks about having a multiple accounts and retweeting each other to build publicity for things. So it, it very quickly becomes something that, um, yeah, that just gets used in, in, in all kinds of, all kinds of ways which is you know it's kind of important for some users like there's a bunch of indie comedians who use twitter to try out their bits for their stand-up and if their jokes get stolen that is actually you know that's important um for them Uh, on the other hand creating this kind of hermetically sealed media object called a tweet that you can only press a button to retweet in order to make sure that the metrics flow to the to the uh, originator is very much a media industry way of organizing the platform rather than a social network way mm-hmm. so it's all connected to the the drive for uh, an advertising based business model yeah yeah so as we enter the the late teen years of twitter um, and as you've been watching this platform and studying its development, what do you think are some of the challenges that the platform faces in its current iteration? And maybe what are some of the current tension points that meet, might lead towards the next convention or the next evolution in the the tweet? I mean, like all platforms right now, Twitter is trying to to tame the beast it unleashed unknowingly. And, and I think... I mean, Twitter is really interesting right now because they're trying out so many different kinds of ways of thinking about how do we, like they've got this move to go, okay, maybe we can kind of have some insiders who will help us do some content moderation-y kinds of things. And um, I think that, and plus they're also doing all of these uh, things with alternative business models built into the platform, like Twitter spaces, where you can have tweets that your audience is going to have to pay you to see, or um, they've got a few things of that ilk going on, sort of um, amped up Twitter. They bought the newsletter service, and now they're incorporating newsletters. So I think that Twitter is struggling with the constant problem it's had since day one, which is, uh, what are we? What are we for? What's our niche? What's our purpose? What is Twitter exactly? And then, of course, the other beast it's struggling with always is just content moderation, as they all are. What's appropriate? What are we going to allow? What are we not going to allow? How are we going to make those decisions? How are we going to deal with it when these are decisions in every country where we operate and countries are so different and we don't actually have people on the ground who speak every single language. And if we did, even even if we did, there aren't such clear, obvious yes, no's that we could just hire them all and they could go through and go, that's okay. That's not, that's okay. That's not. These are huge problems. I think, I mean, I think that Twitter would kind of like to position itself at right now. I see them sort of trying to position themselves as we'll be the ones who figure this out somehow. We'll be experimental and we'll figure out how to get creators some revenue and how to, 
involve the community in moderation in ways they haven't before, um, whether they succeed at these things or not. Yeah, I think we'll see. I I think over the over the the past twelve months, let's say, I think it's it's pretty obvious that there's been a correlation between the change of president of the United States and a feeling of kind of a fresh start. Twitter was very slow actually to engage um, with its its user base around issues of abuse and harassment until it became very clear that these were issues of kind of the security of world peace um, quite literally. Um, and so... So I think on content moderation, on on reporting abuse and harassment, uh, they've been making good strides forward. They kind of were in a holding pattern in terms of evolving the business model for quite a while there. So they they had Periscope early on, which was kind of the live video thing. They bought. They, did they buy Vine? What did I say? Yeah, they bought Vine and then they killed Vine. They they bought Vine and then allowed it to wither and die. Um, and so now they're, they're really trying to think seriously, as Nancy said, about how to engage with the whole, um, the whole digital economy around, around content creators and social media entertainment, which they're a hugely important part of. So they're a really important part of the social media entertainment ecosystem, but have no viable way of monetizing it at this point. So I think that's a big challenge because just advertising is just a pretty thin, a pretty thin model. Well, I'm so glad that you guys took the time to come and talk about your book. Thank you for writing it. It was such a pleasure to read. I think anyone who's at all interested in communication, the internet, will, will benefit from this book. I know I learned so much throughout it. So before we go, uh, I wonder if you'd like to share with us, what are you working on at the moment? What what can we be looking forward to from from either of you? Got any hot new centers going, Jean? <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm working on uh, a bunch of stuff around the question of what automated decision-making means for society in a range of contexts, including digital media. So continuing to work quite a lot on some of these issues around algorithmic content moderation and so on, but uh, more broadly than that. And that makes sense, actually, because a lot of these technologies and the politics uh, and governance challenges around them have been tried out in social media for 10 years and are now making their way uh, into other domains, whether that's health or whether it's transport or whether it's the the, um, social service provision and so on. And as part of that, my next book is called Everyday Data Cultures, which I'm co-authoring with colleagues, with three colleagues here in Australia, with Kath Albury, Rowan Wilkin and Anthony McCosker, where we're going a little deeper and wider into some of these questions of uh, everyday participation and engagement of ordinary people with processes of datafication and taking seriously uh, everyday agency in all of that. Um, I'm always jealous when Jean works with other people, even though I love all the other people you're working with. You're working (laughs) with other people too. We have an arrangement. That's besides the point. Yeah, well, so as you can imagine, somebody who studies interpersonal communication and digital media and works at Microsoft when the whole world starts working from home using video conferencing and digital media finds herself addressing the future of work. 
Uh, so I've spent the last year uh, unexpectedly uh, focused on questions of collegiality in the, in the remote work context, and I've found myself um, focused on how people provide social support to one another in organizational contexts when they're not working in the same place. So in a way, it's a turn away from the kinds of things we talk about in Twitter. On the other hand, it's still about everybody, about people's everyday practices using media in order to create supportive relationships uh, in a space where, like Twitter, the uh, assumption is you're supposed to be doing serious things, but those ephemeral fun things are actually so critical to the social fabric. Part of what I think happened with Twitter is that when they drove out the fun ephemerality, they lost the moral ties that bound people together that would have, could have possibly been part of the solution to many of the problems that they face, but they drove it away before it could be. If you make something all about, look at me, look at me, look at me, and you go, yeah, its point is to make sure people look at you, then when people are looking at the wrong person, you don't have a lot of institutional legs to stand on. Whereas if you create a, something where it's about, let's support each other, let's support each other, then you've created a very different dynamic. So I'm trying to move toward that, let's support each other, let's support each other in the workplace. Those sound like absolutely amazing projects. I can't wait to follow the development of both of them. And thank you so much for the generosity of your time. Uh, so thankful this has been a conversation with Gene Burgess and Nancy Bame, authors of Twitter, a biography. You can get your copy now from New York University Press. Thanks, Nancy and Gene. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, feel free to tweet about it or share it in whatever <laughs> uh, social media way that you would enjoy. That's the best way that you can spread the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. And I hope you have a great day.